This is Meditations for Misfits, and I'm Fred Gruy. Welcome. This week's podcast offers a reflection on the first chapter of the book of Joshua in the Hebrew Scriptures, or the Christian Old Testament. And we consider what are the ramifications of the promise made by God to Joshua and to us. Be of good courage, don't be afraid, for I am with you. We have two wonderful readings this morning, uh, one from the Jewish scriptures and one from the New Testament. The first text that uh, Kay read to us from the book of Joshua is the conclusion of uh, the story of the Exodus. The people have come out of Egypt. They've wandered through the wilderness 40 years, and they're on the brink of the promised land. And this is a a wonderful text. I love it. I, I, I love God shows up and talks to Joshua, who was Moses' second in command, with the wonderful news, Moses is dead. You're in charge now, Bubba. Lead these people. Now don't be afraid. I'm with you. It'll be all right. So it reminds me when T.G. resigned and Casey was in the office, I walked into her office. I said, Casey, T.G.'s gone. (laughs) You're in charge now. Don't be afraid. God is with you. And she looked at me like I had three heads. But this is uh, an incredible story that's been handed on to us. And I I love what Tyler Connolly, our uh, conference minister, had to say to us last week where many of these stories from the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, are true, they may not be factual. And so here's what I mean. Anne Beaufort of our congregation uh, recommended a book to me that I bought and have been reading. It's a brand new book just out by a historian and archaeologist from Cambridge in England. So you know the guy's got more degrees than a thermometer, and he's a really bright guy named Jacob And he's got this fascinating book on why the Bible came to be. So not what's in the Bible, but why do we have the Bible? And he has done an enormous amount of research. And he's written several books on the topic, but this one is really fabulous. And his premise is that the Bible came to be it was there was a group of scribes and holy people somewhere between the 4th and 7th century before the common era that's year 0 so before the common era that compiled these texts because they were having difficulty how do we be a people how do we be a nation when we have no government no law no land One of the the brilliant points that Jacob Wright makes in his book is that this is one of the rare documents in all of world literature because we have a document written by the losers of history, the defeated, the devastated, the marginalized, the outcast, 
most all other documents by people like that were destroyed by whoever conquered them. And this is a rare document that it's written by the losers in history. And we still have it. So how does a displaced, marginalized, oppressed people communicate? What does it mean to be a people when we're not in charge of anything? Because the Israelites were conquered first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. And they're resettled into this land. And so they look back into their history and they pull together some old uh, stories and uh, folk tales and songs and poems and and try to mush it all together to make sense of who we are. What does it mean to be a people when we're not in charge of anything? Think of it this way. Think of if we had lost World War II and we were occupied and there was no longer any president or Congress or Supreme Court and the Constitution was destroyed. But what would it mean? how would we try to be American? What would it mean to be American? when you don't have a land, when you don't have a government, when you don't have a rule, a law? What would it, how would we be a people? And that's the struggle that these scribes in the 4th to 7th century before the common area were struggling. How do we be a nation? The way Jacob Wright writes about it, he says, the Hebrew scriptures explains how one ancient community in the aftermath of defeat and devastation, reinvented itself, and in the process discovered many survival strategies. And, and what is developed in these stories, in the way this text is put together, continues through the New Testament, because the New Testament was written by the losers, the vanquished. Think of it, we're Christians. What is our big celebration day, Good Friday, where our leader is murdered? That's our victory. And so there is this light motif that runs through the whole of the Bible that the losers are the real winners. As Paul would later exclaim, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. How do the marginalized, the oppressed become the winners? There is this theme that runs through the Bible that makes no logical sense. And so these gatherers of these texts were trying to make sense out of all this and put it together in, in, in a fashion. Jacob Wright writes that to have a nation, you have to have a narrative. That's what ties it together. And so these ancient scribes put these texts together in a way to create a story, a narrative, a national myth to explain who we are, to hold the people together, to hold the community together. And so as part of this national myth, they created a story where the people came through the wilderness and then marched into Canaan and conquered all the Canaanites because God was with us. Now, in recent years, archaeology and historians have gone back and looked through all the records and the, and the debris left in the land, and they found no evidence of any such thing ever happening. That there was no migration through Sinai for 40 years, and there was no marching into Canaan and killing of peoples and taking of the land. The best they can surmise at this point, with the best science we have, is that, that it was a very peaceful agrarian migration. 
and immigration of peoples that just came in looking to grow crops. And over time, they became a people and identified. So these scribes are creating a story to make the point God is with us and God will hold us through even when it seems like we're losing. That's the point. And so what it goes back to what Tyler said last week. While this, there is truth, it may not be factual. So while they didn't go in and conquer, what they're trying to communicate is God is with us. We're special. God loves us. Even though all evidence of the contrary right now, it looks like we're losers. We don't have anything. Don't be afraid. God is with us. Be courageous. God has said, I'm with you. That's what they're writing. The way I read it now, which has been very helpful in light of the events since October 7th in Israel and Gaza and all of that. So how do we understand this then? Then we have this second reading where our rabbi Jesus comes and I think helps reinterpret what this means to be the people of God, to be select, to be chosen. I remember I used to have a button and it burned in the Almeida fire and it may be because my button was why the Almeida fire happened so this could burn up. But I had a button that said, Jesus loves everybody, but I'm his favorite. <laughs> and we all think that. And, and so what Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. God is with you, but don't allow that to make you feel elitist or better than or more special. Or, and, and don't go out and try and convert everybody else and conquer everybody else and make them like you. That's not what it's about. Our election to be special to the heart of God and to know that God is with us is so to free us to go serve other people, to make life better for other people, to make sure other people have what they need. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus declares, I did not come to be served, but to serve, to make people's lives better. That's what we're called to do. We, we, God is with us and God loves us so that we can go make life better for others. And in so doing, we make it better for ourselves. I, I believe that is what this text from Matthew is giving to us. And Jesus says, the greatest among you, the greatest among you will be the servant. So don't feel like God is with you and you're special and everybody else, and our church is the right church and all the other churches are really wrong and they're all going to hell because we really know the right way. Get rid of that stuff. That's not good. <laughs> We're supposed to help each other. And then Jesus says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I read what Jesus is saying is this. Look, it's our job to humble ourselves and serve other people. It's God's job to lift us up. And if we try and do God's job, God will do our job <laughs> and humble. So the whole idea is to, serve, to, to make life better for each other, for others. That's what I see the call of this text. And it got me thinking about the, the, what myth we live by, particularly as a nation in this time of so much turmoil and conflict. And I reread some articles by the opinion writer David Brooks of the New York Times. And uh, he's been on PBS NewsHour a lot. And he writes for The Atlantic, I think. And he's written a lot about the national myth. Particularly, he was writing when Donald Trump was running for president and that whole 
storyline of Make America Great Again, that that's a, a national myth. And, and David Brooks looks back over our history as a people, as Americans, and pointing out some really national myths that did quite a lot of destruction. He, he points to, for one classic example, the myth of manifest destiny, which was the myth that Europeans were destined by God to find this land. And God brought us here to liberate the savages and to make them civilized. And in so doing, it's okay to steal all their land and take their women and do what we want because it's our destiny. That was a national myth that encouraged our European ancestors to come and do horrific things. And, and then later on, we've had this myth of American exceptionalism, that we're the best country on the planet. We are the light on the hill. We are the greatest civilization that's ever been birthed. And all the other nations of the world would do well to look at us as a role model and as, ex and as an example. And that that myth has empowered our ancestors to do some really, really awful things and try to export capitalism to all parts of the world when it's got a lot of flaws. And we're seeing that now. So these were myths that we had to, to hold us together as a people. And then David Brooks, I love this, tongue in cheek, he says, it's time for a new national myth. And I suggest, how about love one another? <laughs> Wouldn't that be a great national myth? As Americans, it's our goal. Love one another. I, I had a friend, a really crazy guy. He was really funny. We were talking one day. He said, you know, if we really want to make changes in this country, we need, need to change the national anthem. We need to get rid of the Star Spangled Banner. He says, what if our national anthem was, we all live in a yellow submarine? Can you imagine, how could you be a warring, warlike people if you're always singing, we all live, you know, before every football game, we all live in the yellow summer. How do you go make war on people when you're singing that? You can't. But that's part of the, a new myth of who we are, what we're about, why we are. And so it's time, we do definitely need a new national myth. Now, another thing I've been reading this week is, is the wonderful Rabbi Joshua, Abraham Joshua Heschel. And Heschel had this passage that just arrested me. He's talking about Albert Camus, and if you're not familiar with Camus, Camus was an existentialist philosopher who uh, wrote a, an essay called The Myth of Sisyphus. And in that essay, uh, Camus goes on about how life is just absurd and the only real philosophical question is suicide. Why don't we just all go kill ourselves because nothing matters, there's no meaning, just, ah, this is silly. That's the myth of Sisyphus. It's not a fun read, but <laughs> Abraham Heschel says, according to Albert Camus, there's only one really serious philosophical problem and that's suicide. May I suggest there is really only one serious problem, and that is martyrdom. Is there anything worth dying for? We can only live the truth if we have the power to die for it. Suicide is an escape from evil and surrender to absurdity. A martyr is a witness to the holy in spite 
of the evil absurdity. And I think Heschel, the, the brilliant genius that he was, chose that word martyr particularly because in the Greek the word martyr means witness, to be a witness, that no, life is not evil and life is not absurd. And, and that got me thinking of why is it we come here? Why do we do the silliness of getting out of bed on a cold, rainy Sunday morning, come to this building, put on nice clothes, act like we're nice to each other for a little bit, <laughs> sing our songs, pray our prayers, listen to a reflection on what we believe is the word of God? Why do we do all this? And I have come to believe that our coming here to this room, to this space, is a statement that might does not make right. That people, human beings, are not to be judged by the color of their skin, their religion, their sexual identity, their age, their income, or their education. That there is another way to be a human being that might does not make right. We come here to say life is not evil and it is not absurd. We do believe that actions have consequences, but we also believe there is a Holy One who loves us and is with us. And so we come here to remind ourselves of this Holy One and to be encouraged and to not be afraid trusting this Holy One is with us and will show us another way to be a human being. The incredibly brilliant Pema Chodron, a Buddhist teacher, has written, compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. And one of the reasons I come here, I want to become a more compassionate human being. And she says it becomes real when we recognize our shared, we're all afraid. We all want to be accepted. We all want to be safe. We all want to have enough. And when we work for that for each other, when we make sure that that's available to everybody, we become the most fully human we are meant to be. So what I've come to believe is that our coming to this place to do all this stuff that we do is an act of defiance saying no to the power brokers, to those that would frighten us, to separate us. This is an act of defiance. We are saying no. There is another way to be a human being. And we're stumbling along. We don't do it perfectly, but we're trying. For God's sake, we're trying. We're going to learn how to be nice to each other. We're going to learn how to help other human beings on this planet, not caring about all the stuff that separates other people. We just want to care because they're human just like us. And we trust if we do this, God is with us. And so we will not be afraid. But we will continue to come here and do what we do out of defiance to the empire of the world system that tries to oppress and subjugate and do harm. May it be so.